This episode is brought to you by Podcast Assist, offering voiceovers, audio editing and mastering, transcriptions and show notes, episode summaries, and even hosting a podcast on a topic important to you. Visit Facebook.com slash Podcast Assist for more info on their flat $30 per hour rate. Subscribe with iTunes, Audioboom, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting app. And if you enjoy what you hear, like us on Facebook. Also, consider throwing a little cash our way by visiting patreon.com slash koreafm. And find more of our great content on our home on the web, koreafm.net. With more and more Korean and international tourists visiting Jeju, the government and those involved with the tourism industry are trying to make the most of the boom in visitors. But some say more needs to be done to protect Jeju from the negative consequences of too much tourism. And one journalist living on the island is stressing the need for proactive measures to prevent Jeju from losing what attracts visitors to the island in the first place. I spoke with Jeju Weekly writer and editorial advisor Darren Southcott about the future of the island and how making the right decisions now can ensure Jeju's tourism success. Currently, tourism's around, I believe, 13 million, and it's looking to rise to 20 million by 2025. Going back just a few years to 2010, I believe it was around 10 million. So you can see it's, it's increasing at quite a rate and it has been speeding up, particularly in the last five years or so. The tourism model on Jeju was built around group tourism because that was the form of tourism enjoyed by many East Asians. Um, and it was, it was targeted initially towards mainland Koreans and Japanese and now to Chinese. And the issue with this is how much money goes directly to communities. So a lot of group tourists will come and they will come on a package tour and people are being transported from the airport directly to a big resort with minimal contact with villagers. They'll spend a minimal amount of money in areas which benefit Jeju um, heritage and culture as well. And, and if we're going to go the mass tourism route, how is that going to damage the Jeju brand? And, and the Jeju brand is secondary to, to Jeju's um, environment. How is 20 million tourists going to impact that? So if we need to look at how we're going to in, ensure that tourists really value the island and actually want to come here, some areas need protection. I think everyone agrees that you know that People understand the concept that certain areas have value and therefore we should cherish them. And I think Jeju Island is, is unique in being a UNESCO triple crown with a World Natural Heritage, Biosphere Reserve, Geoparks. It also has numerous Ramsar wetlands. And so we know this island is very, very precious as a, an ecological habitat. But currently, we don't seem to be actually showing that in, the, in our tourism policy because we're just looking to get more and more people here. Jeju Weekly editorial advisor Darren Southcott says one of the ways Jeju could limit tourism and also generate revenue to protect the island is by charging every visitor a small fee. By introducing eco-tax um, for tourists that visit, not only do we ensure that people coming here value the island because they see it's precious, because they see that we, I, I have to pay an eco-tax to come here, that's a privilege. It's not a debilitating eco-tax either. Um, if you look at something like Man One Per Visitor, it's not something that would put off many tourists, if any at all. Um, but it could it could make people think about the island in a different way, behave about the island in a different way. And also it would create a pot of funds which could be used for conservation projects, areas such as coastal habitat, improving conservation areas, ecotourism facilities on the island, 
for managing the national park, uh, even for um, welfare for the remaining diving women and the important role they play in, in local communities. So there's lots of ways the money could be spent which would not only benefit islands directly, but would also influence how people interact with Jeju Island. So with this announcement that said we're going to increase to 20 million tourists by 2025, there was a lot of worry on the island that, in fact, we're just going to you know, make a model which already isn't working as well as it could and just to make that even bigger. And I think we can increase um, incomes for local island, for islanders and we can increase the benefit to local communities without even increasing tourism numbers. And that's by ensuring more money is spent with villagers in local shops, in local restaurants, and less of it is spent on group tours, in, in big hotels, in closed off resorts. And I think that's the issue we need to look at. I'm not very optimistic that this will actually be tackled, but I think that it is a conversation that people are having on the island. And that, that is encouraged by things such as the Jeju Ole system, which is a great grassroots walking trail around the island, which has really transformed a lot of villages and led to much more local spending than any official policy has. So I think we need to make a distinction between high spending and quality tourists. So I would say a quality tourist is someone who comes here, engages with local heritage, local culture, really um, goes out and, and engages with the environment and spends locally. And there are some steps in that direction. Um, things such as the Global Geopark, which um, does a lot of good work with lo local communities. I also spoke with an expert who says Jeju's tourism policy reflects last century's thinking. I'm uh, Ross Dowling, a professor of tourism at Edith Cowan University in Western Australia, and I also advise UNESCO on geotourism through the UNESCO Global Geoparks Programme. I've had the great fortune to travel the world from the Antarctic to the Arctic and from South America through to Africa, Asia, Europe and, uh, and, and all other parts. And I have to say that Jeju Island is one of the most beautiful islands in the world. I mean, it certainly lives up to its ranking of holding the triple crown of, of Biosphere Reserve, World Heritage and also Geoparks and at the same time being one of the new seven wonders of the world. But if Jeju wants to keep those then they will have to start to look at the number of tourists that are coming to the island because if they have if it's over, perceived to be overrun by mass tourists then it will turn off the very tourists that I'm suggesting that Jeju could attract that is the high yield you know high paying tourists from Japan and from, uh, they're emerging in China now, but they're already there in Europe and North America and Australia, you know, where they would love to go to Jeju, but for a more natural experience. There is a sort of a cycle of uh, evolution, if you like, for tourist destinations where they start as an emerging destination, then they become increasingly popular, people start to go, then there's mass tourism goes to a particular destination, and then after a while, the visitors get get sick of seeing lots and lots and lots of other tourists there and so then that destination goes into decline. So this is well known around the world and what I perceive as a frequent visitor to Jeju Island is it's it probably in the next few years going to reach a, a point where it will become saturated with tourists and 
the international tourists that are visiting this beautiful island will start to think to themselves, well, it might be beautiful, but I don't want to be there with uh, you know, millions of other tourists uh, at any particular time. For KoreaFM.net, I'm Chance Storland. This episode is brought to you by Podcast Assist, offering voiceovers, audio editing and mastering, transcriptions and show notes, episode summaries, and even hosting a podcast on a topic important to you. Visit Facebook.com slash Podcast Assist for more info on their flat $30 per hour rate. Talk radio, music, and podcasts from the Korean Peninsula. KoreaFM.net.